Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Joshua 7, we will look at this together. As I look around, I notice we have a few people who normally attend our East Campus here this morning, and I just want to remind you, maybe you didn't know this, but last week we called the West Campus to pray that you would get a place, and you got a place this week. So take that message back to East, that when we started praying, the Lord answered. So we'll just create our list and bring the prayer warriors from West together, and the Lord will answer, apparently. Now, that's great news. Thank you for all who are praying. It's a big deal. We want our East Campus to have a location out on the East Side. That's why we sent them there, and uh, we are rejoicing in that. So last week, we looked at Joshua chapter 6, and you may recall it was a It was a great experience for the people of Israel. God did an amazing work. The soldiers, the priests, the Ark of the Covenant, they marched around Jericho seven times for seven days in a row, and then the last day seven times, and they blew their horns, they shouted their war cries, and God brought the walls tumbling down and gave victory to the people of God. What a a day of celebration, of seeing God provide. But then chapter 7 begins rather ominously. It says, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. If you were here a few weeks ago, several weeks ago now, when we looked at chapter 4, it's the chapter that deals with the memorial stones. And I illustrated it by thinking of a, a man, this is down the road a ways from our time here, a man who, whose son was asking about God's provision and, and their victory in the promised land, and, and he decided to show his son the memorial stones near the Jordan River. Remember we talked about that? Uh, I, I sort of illustrated it with a, a guy saying to his son, come on, I'm going to show you, and here are these stones to remind us of how God stopped the waters and allowed the people to walk across the Jordan River on dry land. And that was the beginning of God doing amazing things in the land of Canaan. Well, let's carry on that illustration for a moment to set up this chapter. Imagine now the, the, the man and his boy are heading back home and they take a little bit different journey and they come to a place called Achor, which is the Hebrew word for trouble or disaster. And the boy sees another little pile of stones, and he gets excited and says, Dad, Dad, is, are those more memorial stones? Is this something else that reminds us of God's greatness and provision? And the man's face changes to a more somber expression. He says, yes, these are memorial stones, but they are commemorating something quite different from the deliverance and the victory that we had crossing the Jordan. We will see at the end of this chapter those second memorial stone represented. So in the first verse I read to you, the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. Some of your translations have uh, acted unfaithfully toward the things that were devoted to destruction or devoted to God, something along those lines. Uh, This is the Hebrew word harem. Now, you probably think of a harem, maybe, maybe from uh, Islam, 
and how that's been extended to someone who has a king kind of man or a head of a household who has a harem of, of women. Well, that came to mean that because the, the Hebrew word harem uh, originally meant a place that was set apart for a god or for a king, a place that was set apart, a place devoted where his women were that were devoted to him stayed. So it would be his wives, his concubines, his unmarried daughters, uh, his slave girls, that kind of thing. And so as that place was devoted to this king, no one else was allowed to have access to them. Uh, that is the Hebrew word, harem. In the Old Testament, we find there were some things devoted to God, the, the harem of God, which were for his, his pleasure, for his service. Certain men, animals would be set apart for God in this way. But most often, the word is used to describe people or cities that were set apart, devoted to God, to be punished by God, to be destroyed because of their sin. You may remember back to... We discussed how Abraham, 400 plus years prior to this, was promised this land of Canaan. He said, someday your descendants are going to occupy all of this land. In the meantime, you're going to go to be slaves in Egypt. But someday I will bring your people back to this land when the sin of the Amorites has reached the fullness and that's what's happening as God is bringing his people into the land of Canaan. He is using Israel as his instrument of judgment to this land of Canaan. The people have been devoted to God's destruction. That's the very sober reality. We saw this back in chapter 6, although we went through it very quickly. Back in chapter 6, verse 17, it says, The city, that is Jericho, shall be under the ban or devoted to destruction. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So the whole city of Jericho is going to be destroyed. But as for you, he says, verse 18, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. That word accursed is the same word harem. In Hebrew, there are four instances of this word harem in this verse. And basically, God is saying, keep yourselves from the things that are devoted to God. Don't take them. And don't covet them so that you take some of the things that are devoted to God and make the people of Israel now under God's devotion to utter destruction. See what's going on here? God is warning them. When you go in and I give you victory over the city, you're to, de you're to destroy everything that's living, burn down the city, and do not covet. Don't take the treasury for yourself. It's all God's, if you take it for yourself, then you will bring Israel into that status of being devoted to God for destruction. Verse 19, but the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron, they are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. 
So Israel's given victory. They go in and, and conquer the kingdom. The walls come tumbling down. They, they take their swords and they have complete victory. And they're celebrating and it's wonderful. And chapter 6 ends with Joshua's fame is, is being proclaimed throughout the land. And then chapter 7 says, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. Somebody took some of the treasure, some of the, the spoils of war for themselves. We are told who that is. Continuing on, verse 1. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. They were warned of what would happen if you take any of the gold and silver and stuff from Jericho. And Achan looked with his eyes, said, I like that, I want that, and he took it for himself. How many lives do you suppose in the history of the world have been destroyed for the sake of money? How many people have ruined their lives through their greed? How many people have brought destruction upon themselves because they wanted that and that and that. You know, the scripture warns us over and over again. The New Testament warns us of the love of money. Paul said some very sobering things to Timothy. He said, warn the Christians, warn the churches not to be lovers of money. For the love of money is what? The root of all evil. Now, some of your translations think, oh, that's too big of a statement. He must have meant all kinds of evil. That's not what Paul said. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, I do think he's using a little bit of hyperbole there, but he's trying to make a point. How many sins are committed because people want more riches? Jesus warned people over and over again. He talked to, told the parable of the guy who had huge barns full of stuff, and he says, I'm going to tear down those barns and build bigger barns because I've got to have a place to store up all my wealth. And the implication is he was trusting in his wealth. He was greedy. And Jesus said, you're a fool. Today your very life is called, uh, you're called to account for your life, and what is your wealth going to do for you then? Now, we've got to be clear it's not sinful to have wealth. It's not sinful to have money. If an oil well springs up in your backyard, praise the Lord. I'd like one to start shooting up in my backyard. Just make sure you tithe and we're all good. If you come up with that million-dollar idea for a business and it prospers, great. If you invested in Bitcoin when it was 10 bucks, today's a good day. Having wealth is not the problem, depending on what you do with it. But the love and the pursuit of money that is born out of greed and a passion to do whatever it takes to get more, which leads you into sin, which leads you into disobedience to the law and, and all the ramifications, even the idea that is, is not as overt as stealing, over-leveraging, getting so committed to debt that one little slip and your whole world comes crashing down, your world can be devastated because of your love of money and, and lack of wisdom in that. How many times do we see people in the scripture, 
people in the world around us whose lives are devastated because they just want more no matter what it takes to get it. This man, Achan, brought great trouble on the whole nation of Israel and on his own family, as we will see through his greed. So the story goes, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. So here's the next town that they're going to conquer. They're done with Jericho. Now we're moving to this place. I, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out I. They returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to I. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there. So this is going to be easy. Joshua, we don't need to send the whole army. Just give me a, a, a few squadrons. We can, we can handle this. Just 3,000 people. We got this. There aren't very many of them. They're puny. They're small. No, no problem. But they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabiram and struck them down on the descent so that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So they just come off this amazing victory over Jericho. They think they have an easy one here in Ai and they are sent running like a dog with his tail between his legs in fear by this little small kingdom. And instead of the excitement, instead of the confidence, we've got this, now they are terrified. And you remember the phrase that was used for the entire, all the kingdoms of Canaan was their hearts melted like wax before the Israelites. Now the Israelites, their hearts are melting before this little bitty group because God had given them victory over the Israelites. It's a sad day. So this is how Joshua responds. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan, O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Up to this point, Joshua has been an amazing man of faith and courage. Remember over and over again, God says, be strong and be courageous, be strong and be courageous. Be like Moses, be strong and courageous. And he was, all the way back to the beginning, the time with Moses up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and, and, and he was with Moses, he was faithful. He was one of those spies that went into the land originally and said, we can take them. In God's power, we can take them. A great man of faith. But here, like so many other giants in in the history of redemption, he has a little blip, a little expression of his humanity. He has so much confidence coming out of Jericho, but then after the defeated eye, he falls on his face before the Lord and says, oh, if only, 
If only we had not had such ambition to take this whole land of Canaan. If only we had been content to stay over on that side of the Jordan, we wouldn't be crushed. Do you see the error in his thinking? God had promised them, this is your land. I'm going to give you victory. But now he's starting to rethink it. You ever done this? You're so confident what you're doing is pleasing to the Lord. You're heading into this relationship, into this mission field, into this new job, whatever, and you've done your due diligence. You've prayed about it. You've read the scripture. You've, you've sought the counsel of others, and you think, all right, this is going to be great. And for the first little while, it is fantastic. And then something hard comes, some obstacle, and you start doubting. Wait, wait a minute. I can tell you how many times I've had people come to me and say, how do I know if I miss the will of God? I said, well, why are you asking? And by the time they get done describing the situation, it's because they don't like what's happening. What is the assumption behind that question? We have a little bit of prosperity gospel that slips in very easily, like God has promised us a life of ease. Whatever we set our hand to is going to be awesome and wonderful and prosperous and we sort of skip over all those texts of Scripture that say tribulation is guaranteed for anyone who wants to please Christ. Someone has said, I'm not sure who the original person was, but someone has said, don't ever question in the dark what God has shown you in the light. You know, there are times when you are so certain this is what the Lord wants me to do, and then it gets difficult and you start doubting. You're out here in the light and the Lord is making it clear and your conscience is clear. The Spirit of God is testifying to your spirit. This is good. This is right. And then doors shut that you thought would be open. Relationships are harder than you expected. This great dream you had, this great vision you had, it's taking really hard work and you seem to be spinning your wheels and you're going nowhere and you think, Maybe this is not of God. What's the assumption? God doesn't ever want me to experience hard things. That's a lie. Remember Jesus, how he got to the cross? Sorry, I gave the story away. How he got to the right hand of the Father? It was through the cross. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, all of us who are following our champion to glory have to go through the cross. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. That hurts. Whatever the cross is going to be in your life, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be joyful. And here Joshua just can't believe it. We've been defeated by I. Oh, if only. If only we had not tried to get into the promised land. God, here's what's going to happen, Lord. All the rest of the nations are going to hear this, and they're going to come, and they're just going to pummel us and pound us, and we're going to be destroyed, and now your great name, this great thing we're going to do for you, it's not going to happen. So he did the right thing in that he went to the Lord with this. So it's not all bad, but he's making an assumption, a big one. Verse 10, so the Lord said to Joshua, get up, 
Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Joshua, you're being overdramatic. Get up. It's not what you think. Israel has sinned. And they've also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, and they've taken some of the things under the ban and have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. They have become under the ban. You see that? That's the same word in the Hebrew. This is harem. They, Israel now is devoted to God's destruction because of the sin of Achan. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word anathema. That man's sin has caused Israel to be anathema to God. This is serious. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. He's talking about the sinner here. Rise up, get up, concentrate the people and consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord of God of Israel, and he explains how God is going to identify who this sinner is. Verse 15, it shall be the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by, by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerites. He brought the family of the Zerites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought his household near man by man, and Achan, son of Camry, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it was like for, for Achan in that moment? You see what's going on here, right? The next day, God is, uh, is revealing by lot who the sinner is. So first, it's cast the lot, and whichever tribe shows up, in this case it was Judah, and so the whole tribe of Judah is to step forward. And then he narrows in on a clan, and it's the next guy, this clan, Zerah. And then out of that clan, there's a, there's a family, Zabdi, all the way down to Achan. And I just wonder, what was going on in the mind of Achan as this is happening? Is he standing around watching, thinking, it's not me? It's not me. Nobody knows what I've done. Oh, I feel horrible. This is going to be bad for whoever it is that's committed this great sin who gets caught. Or does he know full well it's him and the fear and the trembling, the terror watching as this progresses until he is called out by name? You are the one? Beloved, don't hide your sin from God. Well, you can't. Don't try to hide your sin from God. How much better is it 
to, for you to come forward voluntarily and say, Lord, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. Don't wait until God decides to expose your shame in front of everybody. And he will. He will. There's an old saying, your sins will find you out. You can't get away with anything before God. We can hide it from other people. Some are really, really good at this. Very calculating, very careful, scrupulous almost. It's probably an inappropriate use of that word. Very detailed in trying to hide our sin from the people around us, even the people closest to us. But you can't hide it so well that the God who sees all doesn't see your disobedience. And he's a gracious God. He's a kind and forgiving God. And he says, I will forgive everyone who asks. Come confess your sin to me and I will forgive it, he says. But if you hide it, conceal it, think you can get away from it, away with it. Someday he says, it's time. And I'm going to bring this out in front of everybody. Even if he doesn't do it in this day, in this age, in this life, Jesus said there is a time coming when everything that has been hidden will be revealed. When we stand before him at judgment, there will be nowhere to hide. And he's going to have our entire life before him, everything we've ever done written in his book, and he's going to know it, and he's going to call it out. So much better to do it now and receive forgiveness in the power of the Holy Spirit to repent of that sin and move forward in righteousness. Achan didn't do that. He hid his sin from everyone else, buried with his stuff, but God knows. So here he is called out in front of the entire nation of Israel. Verse 20, so Achan answered Joshua and said, truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, that's a beautiful robe from Babylon, very possibly the king's robe itself, the king of Jericho's robe, so you know it would have been a very fine garment. And 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with silver underneath it. He looked. He, he's one of the soldiers who went in to Jericho to defeat them in God's power. And he sees the robe of the king and he sees the pile of money and he says, I want those things. He had been warned. Don't covet the wealth of this city. It all belongs to the Lord. Yeah, but that looks really good to me. 
How many times does Scripture warn us the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh? All the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Satan convinces Eve that the fruit of that forbidden tree is good to make her wise. It looks good to eat. It'll make her like God. She looks at it and says, I want that. Even though God had said, on the day you eat of it, you shall die. But look how attractive that is. I want that. She grabbed it and she ate it. Gave it to her husband. He ate it. And the whole world was cast under the curse of God. Achan has ringing in his ears the command, don't take anything from this city. And he says, but I want that riches. I want that gold and that silver. And now he's exposed for all to see. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua, to the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor, which means the valley of of trouble. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Trouble to this day. Sometimes we think our sin, certain sins, are rather harmless. I don't know when the last time you watched a movie on DVD or Blu-ray, you get everything straight from the, the internet now, but you know that, that warning that comes up on videos from the FBI, piracy is not a victimless crime. It's easy to blow right past that, uh, you know, these people are all rich. Who cares, you know, somebody makes a copy of the video and hands it off to 10 people. Think, ah, who cares, they're all a bunch of wealthy, greedy, whatever. Well, that may be true too, but someone spent the money to make that movie. And if you give it to 10 of your friends and those 10 people watch it, they don't pay for it, that's money that belongs to the producer of the film that you've now stolen from them. But we look at that and say, ah, it's just, eh, it's, it's not a big deal. And in the grand scheme of things, that's not as big a deal as some things. But Aiken here didn't understand, he didn't appreciate what his sin would mean for others. 36 
wives are now widows because of the sin of Achan. Do you realize that? Because of his sin, God gave victory to I over Israel, and 36 men were cut down because of that man's sin. How many dozens of boys and girls lost their father that day because of Achan's sin? Did you catch in what I was reading? Not only was Achan stoned to death, but so were his wife and children. That was the price of the sin of Achan. And God had forewarned Israel of this over and over again. I will visit the sins of Israel to the third and fourth generation. When a man in the covenant God made with Israel stood before his people, he stood as a representative of all that he had, his wife, his children, his property. He was the one between God and all of them, and his sin became their sin. All because of his greed, his envy, and his desire for, his, for the stuff rather than obedience. This is hard. This is heavy. It has to make us thankful for the new covenant. We're not in that covenant. That's the old covenant God made with Israel. In the new covenant, God does not visit the sins of the father on their children. Praise the Lord. You stand before God on your own. And he's not going to punish your children, not going to punish your wife for your sin. It's a better covenant based on better promises. And again, God promises everyone who believes in Jesus and his death and resurrection, everyone who calls upon him for salvation will be forgiven. And if we sin, we have a redeemer, we have an atoning sacrifice. We can come to him and say, Father, forgive me, I did this please look past this sin. And the Father says, I will look past it because of Jesus Christ. I will not hold this sin against you. That's the new covenant. But it does not mean that our sins have no effect in the new covenant. If you are a child of God, if you have genuine faith, God will not punish you for your sin, but he will discipline you for your sin. And that hurts. All discipline hurts if it's good discipline. And if we continue on in our sin, he will eventually bring God's spanking spoon. And it is not pleasant. He'll bring pain. He'll bring suffering until we have learned what we are to learn and repented of our sin. 
And that can affect our family. A father's sin today can certainly bring his family into all kinds of trouble before God. Again, if you are a child of God, God's purpose is not for you to suffer his wrath, but it is to make you more righteous, to get you to confess your sin, to repent of your sin. If you're not a child of God, then when God exposes your sin, it will be punishment. But not only does it affect our household, it affects the entire church. Over and over again, we see in the New Testament warnings about keeping the church pure. My sin or your sin can bring tragedy to the entire body of Christ. Matt, would you put up Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15? That's what the writer of Hebrews says. This is to the church. This is a new covenant. He says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. In the context of the whole book, what that means is we have a responsibility to keep encouraging one another to walk in righteousness. Two chapters earlier, he said that verse that we all know so well. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That means we've got to be close to each other. We've got to know what's going on. We have to, to be close enough that we can see what does this person need? What, where are they lacking love? Where are they lacking good deeds? So I can push them forward, help them forward to love and good deeds. Why? So that nobody comes short of the grace of God. You see somebody wandering off the path they're moving away from God's grace, from the gospel, from, the, from Christ who can save them. Moving down a path of disobedience that might show they're not a believer at all. We have a mutual responsibility to make sure we all get to the, the finish line in the Christian race. And then he says, see to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many be defiled. This is not a root of bitterness in your heart. This is not an individual thing. It sounds like that. It's how we use the term. Like, check your heart and make sure you don't have this root of bitterness, that you become a, a bitter, a resentful person. That is not what he's saying. He's alluding back to Deuteronomy 29. He's saying, make sure there is not a, a root, a, a, a wormwood plant in your midst, a poisonous plant in your midst. He's talking collectively to the church. We need to have our eyes open and make sure that no one around us is going to poison the whole well of the congregation and that many would be defiled and bring trouble upon the whole body. My sin or your sin Hidden, heinous, can bring defilement to the whole group. Remember the warnings of Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3? That's the only part we ever get to in Revelation, right? 
Like, uh, whatever happens after chapter 3 is just confusing. I don't know what all that stuff is. But 2 and 3 seem pretty clear. Okay, I got this. To the church at Smyrna, right? To the church at Ephesus, right? Okay, I can understand that. Those are severe warnings to an entire church. If you guys don't repent, I'm going to snuff you out, the Lord says. You're like a candle burning, but you are tolerating these sins or those sins, and I'm just going to go, psst, and shut down that church if you allow this stuff to continue. You can all exhale. I'm not here to point out, I don't know if there's any of this going on. I'm encouraged by what I see in, in many ways in this church. So you know I didn't just grab this text because I've got something to really point fingers here. I, no, I don't. It's just the next chapter in, in our book. But God is sovereign, and it may be that some of us need to hear this today. I got an email last week from the wife of a good friend whose husband has been a church leader for many years, and things have come out that undermine everything he ever did in the body of Christ. And I spent time with his wife and his children last night. And they are devastated. Dwight called me on the phone yesterday and told me about another situation. A leader in a church, not here, who for decades has been serving the body of Christ and hiding great sin. It was just discovered. And it's going to bring devastation to the church, to his family, to the name of Christ. You know how many times the New Testament warns us, don't bring reproach to the name of Jesus. It matters. We are declared holy and righteous in Jesus Christ, and we are to live holy and righteous, to become more and more holy and righteous. And God does not simply wink at sin and say, don't worry about it. I already took care of that, no problem. He says, yeah, I took care of it, but I love you too much to allow you to continue in sin. And I love my body too much to allow it to be defiled. I will either raise it up and get rid of it, or I will just be done with that church. Because he will not allow his name to be defiled. So church... And I can tell you as your pastor, I've been doing this. The admonition is search your heart. See if there's any wayward thing in your life. Your conscience is bothering you. The Spirit of God is trying to get your attention before it's exposed to everyone else. Go to him. Find forgiveness in him. Find the power and the strength in the Holy Spirit to confess, to repent, and to get right. For yourself, for your family, for this church body, let us strive for purity and holiness and be devoted to the Lord for good and not discipline. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering words. I know what you've been teaching me for the last couple of weeks, anticipating this. I can... I can imagine what many people here today are feeling, experiencing. 
Lord, we don't want false guilt. We don't want to leave room for the enemy to come and, and weigh us down with things that we have not done. And I know he loves to do that. And so I do ask your protection on anyone here who is not guilty of great sin, that you would not allow the enemy to discourage them. Lord, remind them of your goodness and the work you've done and that they would walk in the joy of repentance and forgiveness. But Lord, if there's anyone here today who knows in their heart they are sinning and they're hiding sin from you, Lord, would you in your grace and for the sake of this body and for the sake of your holy name, would you grant them repentance? Whether it's one-on-one -on -one with you, if they need to confess their family, if they want to come talk to an elder and confess, Lord, do it. May this body, Front Range Alliance Church, both campuses, may we be pure and holy and a righteous bride before the living God. Amen.